I'm Pastor Mike Winger, and this is Bible Thinker, the program dedicated to thinking biblically about everything. Hey guys, welcome to the Tuesday live stream. I am uh, Pastor Mike Winger, and we're going to talk about God's wrath right now. And the question I want to ask heading into it is, how do you feel? How do you feel? And what do you think? Those are two different questions about God's wrath. And we're going to kind of work through this a little bit today. Um, I don't think I'll answer every question about the topic. In fact, I'll probably bring up a lot of questions as I talk about this. Um, Then maybe even bringing up more questions in your mind than I'm answering. But but I encourage you, because it's one of those issues where you can get sidetracked so fast to try to follow this sort of logical thought process that I've tried to create for today's video. And then we're going to go to your guys' questions uh, because this is the Tuesday live stream and I typically do try to do Q&A. We might have a good chunk of Q&A today depending on how long it takes me to get through my content. <clears throat> Thank you for joining me. Again, I'm Pastor Mike Winger and um, I have a big announcement for you guys today. Before we jump into the content on uh, God's wrath and we'll, we'll talk about that, um, we are about to launch or technically we're launching it right now as I speak a new Bible Thinker app. This is a phone app and it's absolutely free and it's for this ministry and um, it'll be available on Android and also on iPhone. Um, let me sh- let me show it to you actually. I'll pull it up on my phone. We've just submitted it to the um, to the Apple store and it takes them a little bit of time to give it to us but, but here's a, a glimpse of what you can get from the app. Oh look I got notifications coming in. Um, so this is this is going to be the Bible Thinker app. You have videos, and they're, and they're actually searchable. Oops, I accidentally watched one here. Hold on. We can only watch one video at a time here. <laughs> um, but they're actually searchable. There, go that way. There we go. And they're arranged by series. So you could look at one of the series I've got online. And over the next week or two, I'm going to populate this series list with a more thorough and careful edition of new series. Um, and you can click one, and it will open up that whole series related to that content. And then you have listen. You can also just listen to audio. If you want to do audio instead of video, that's all on the app right there. And so you can look at for it in the app store either right now or very shortly if it's not available just yet. Um, I'll give you guys more details and stuff on that. I'll be announcing that again in the future as well. I'm just very excited about it because it's going to be a free. There's no ads. There's nothing on it. It's just a free resource to be used and uh, create massive amounts of edification and transformation, God willing, in the lives of uh, people. So that's my little announcement. Um, it's been in the works for quite a while. Um, just a, uh, a businessman who loves this ministry said, I'll take care of it. Tell me what you want. And um, so that means we can provide it free, absolutely free of charge. Okay, so let's talk about God's wrath, how you feel about it, how you feel about it, and what you think about it. And then we'll go to your questions. Um, <clears throat> if God has wrath... I say if here because I'm trying to work through the process. I'm going to conclude, of course, he does. But if God has wrath, that many people, they promote this idea that if God has wrath, there's only two options. There's only two ways to process this information. On one hand, God is either petty and capricious and God just is is, is mean and he's just wrathful and petty. Something He's selfish and rude and, and he's just a bad God. That That's how they interpret the idea. If God has wrath, therefore God is bad. That's like the logic of it. Or they say he doesn't have wrath, in which case he can be a good and loving God, but only if there is no wrath at all in God. Or if you reinterpret wrath to mean something maybe different than what we see in the text of scripture. And this is what I see put forth over and over again. I've been studying on uh, penal substitutionary atonement recently. 
and some of the people who advocate against that that doctrine, which I'll talk more about in the future, um, they they want to say that if God has wrath, he is petty. This is kind of where they go with the thing. And I want to meet you right there. If that's where you're at, if you're thinking either A, God has wrath and he's petty, or B, he has no wrath, in which case he is loving and he's kind and gracious. But if you want to tell me God has wrath and that's an evil God or something like that, um, I want to just ask you a question. Are, are those really the only two options? Is it, are these really the only two possible in, in, in reality, in the universe of possibilities? Are these the only two possible things? Either God has wrath and is petty or has no wrath and he is love. Is there no other option? In your mind, is there no such thing, no such thing as righteous wrath? Righteous wrath. God being angry and it being good. Because that's exactly what the Bible actually presents to us as the reality of uh, God's anger. Now, there's, I can give examples of this to help, help walk you with me through to this conclusion. And one of them is this. Like, when you hear um, stories about, like, say, a, a child molester or, or a loved one that you have is abused and, and, and wounded and, and hurt wrongly, stolen from, and you get angry, do you not sense that there is, within that anger, there is something good happening? There's something good about some anger. There is such a thing as righteous anger. That's a proper and real thing. I'm not saying that we do it well, but I'm saying that even in our human experience, we're aware of its existence because we do feel it sometimes. Hey, that's wrong. In fact, some things when you hear about like child molestation, you hear about the the shootings that we've recently heard about in the news. It's like if you don't get angry about this, maybe something's wrong with you. Like if this doesn't irk you, then maybe something's wrong with you. Some things are so wrong that if you don't get mad, maybe something's wrong with you. And I would say that that's the same case with God. If if God isn't getting angry at all, then perhaps you would actually have a problem. The problem is not that God gets mad. The problem would be if he doesn't. That would be my understanding, and I'll continue to explain it. So first, let me now offer, now that I've just laid out the basic idea, there aren't just two options, there's a third option. God's not petty, nor is he wrathless. He has righteous, holy anger, and it's proper, and it's good, and if he didn't have it, something would be wrong. Now let me give you a list of what differentiates God's wrath from pagan gods, right? Pagan ideas of God, that or God's lowercase g is the simple way to put it, um, or man's wrath. Um, man's wrath, that's easy. I can describe man's wrath really well because I, 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 I've experienced it many times. No, I'm not just talking about people being wrathful at me. I'm talking about me having my own anger and anger and wrath here are relatively the same thing. Um, and so yes, man's wrath, man's anger, uh, th- this is, this is often based on personal desires. And let me give you an example. This was kind of like a realization that hit me recently. Um, I was thinking about and talking with someone about recently, actually. Um, and it has to do with going in crowds. Um, I don't really like being in crowds much. I don't know if you can identify. <laughs> I'm not really a big fan of being crowded. I, I love my, my my personal space. I'm not like a, a germaphobe, like you can't touch me or something. That's not me at all. But but when I'm just crowded around massive amounts of people, it tends to get to me a little bit. And then when I'm walking and people keep cutting you off and then you get more and more irritated and I find myself getting angry and um, not hopefully gobbling, acting out in anger. I'm not, you know swinging my fists at anybody or anything like that but I feel the internal battle right I feel that that irritation and that anger rising up um 
it, re I hit, it hit me recently that while I did see this as a place of, of sanctification, that my life needs, I need more patience here. If I'm going to honor Christ, if I'm going to walk in the spirit, then I need patience here. What hit me recently was that when I was feeling this anger towards who cut me off on the road or who is walking in front of me, it's, it's more crowds of people that this has been happening with it happening uh, to me. And, but what, what hit me was that this was selfish, that th this was like, my eyes were just wide open. When I realized this, I was like, wait, this is selfish. Like I'm thinking that where I want to go is more important than where you want to go, that my, my space is more important than that person's space. And I realized that I was actually being selfish and that changed the way I was handling the issue. And now I prayed about my selfishness and I de dealt with my anger. See, that's, that's my man uh, centered, unjustified anger. This is a bad kind of anger. And the Bible talks about this. Um, James chapter one, verse 20. In James 1.20, it says, for the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. The anger of man, me being mad, it doesn't lead to God's righteousness. And that's just it. There's a danger in my anger. And the danger is sin. When I get mad, I tend to sin. And this is actually what Ephesians talks about as well. In Ephesians 4.26, it says, be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. Now, some misunderstand this passage and they take it to mean um, that you're, don't be angry because it's sinful, but that's not what it says, right? Be angry and do not sin. Ah, because there's a danger in my anger. And the danger is that I'll sin, that I'll sin against God, that I'll sin against my fellow man, that, that I will act out in a selfish manner, in an ungodly manner, being triggered by my anger. So anger isn't always bad, nor is it always good. But there's a danger in the human side. There's a danger in my anger. And you should know this. When you're mad, you need to slow down, like James says, slow to wrath, because you tend to do things wrong, right? You, you don't just close the door, you slam the door. You don't just make your point, you, you shove your point in someone's face. You know that when we're angry, we have to be incredibly self-evaluating, like moment by moment, so that I'm not expressing that anger in a sinful manner towards my fellow man or towards the Lord or towards whoever, my cat, <laughs> my poor cat. No, I'm just kidding. My cats, they're, they're good. They're well taken care of. Um, but yeah, there's a danger in my anger. Now, the difference with God is God never sins when he's angry. As the scripture says, like, you are good and you do good. I love that summary in Psalm 119. You are good and you do good. God is praised for his judgments. Pray, think of this for a moment. He's praised for his judgments. They're not just they're not just something he does that we respect, but the Bible actually praises God for his judgment. As in, when you judged, when you acted out in the God's version of anger or wrath, it was godly, it was good, it was wonderful, and it was praiseworthy. Because God is good all the time, including when he's angry. That's, this, this shouldn't be hard, but we live in a culture where this biblical truth, this reality um, is hard for people to swallow because they, they don't see the difference between them and God. They think God is just like a really powerful human. And so when he gets mad, it's like when humans get mad and there's that same danger. So no, there's no danger of God sinning in his anger. There's no danger in the anger of God as far as sin goes. He will not sin in that anger. Um, but there's a different kind of danger in the anger of God. And the danger is that I have sinned and that God's wrath is pointed at mankind. And there's a lot more I want to say about this today, but that is the real danger. In God's anger, we don't look at him and say, and say like, some people in my life, when I was young, 
I would look at them and I'd see them angry and I'd think they might sin against me. Instead, when I look at God and I see him angry, I know, oh no, it's because of our sin. He's mad because of something he sees that is wicked. He's properly mad, properly angry, so to speak. And it, it doesn't translate perfectly, my anger versus God. Mine's like very, it just almost pure emotional. Sometimes I don't even know why I'm mad and things like that. And God's not going to be suffering with those types of limitations. Um, but there are some things we can learn about God's wrath in this context, in this context. So when you ask, why is God harsh towards sin? Um, it just reveals that we don't see things the way he does. It reveals that we are looking at sin and thinking sin is a problem. Sin, we often call it like mistakes. Like, hey, everybody makes mistakes. But God looks and he sees the wickedness of our hearts, the wickedness of our intentions, and the unvarnished true sinfulness of mankind, which is, and the older you get, hopefully the more you recognize this, which is pretty extreme and it goes pretty deep into every person, our sin uh, our wickedness, our evil, and, and there is good reason that God would respond with anger towards these things, towards these things. It's not the whole story, but it's a piece of the story that's important. We sometimes, we're not like that, right? I get mad. I'm more mad at, at my boss who did this thing today than I am that, that someone was murdered. I'm, I'm more mad that, um, that some politician tweeted something that really irritated me than I am that there were thousands of babies killed in the womb by the, the coercion of doctors and patients, patients working together to kill babies. Like, we're not mad at the right things because we filter it through our own sort of selfishness and our own what I want my lifestyle to be like and what's important to me, what matters to me. And so we have problems with that. But God looks at, he sees everything exactly how it is. See, we're often mad at the, at the situation and how it affects us, but God is looking right at the evil. He's mad at the wrong, not just at how it's inconveniencing someone. That It's bigger than that. Um, I like what uh, Leon Morris says about God's wrath. He says the following um, in his book, The Apostolic Preaching of the Cross. He says, there's a consistency about the wrath of God in the Old Testament. It is no capricious passion, but the stern reaction of the divine nature towards evil. It is aroused only and inevitably by sin. And he says this after surveying several passages where over 20 different words are used to refer to God's wrath um, or anger or his, 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 you know, right response towards sin. And it's consistent. He's angry at sin. He's upset at the wickedness of mankind. It's never a tantrum. God doesn't throw tantrums. And this is so often the caricature, especially from... Um, prog the progressive progressive Christian movement as well as from atheists who often say the same things um, where they'll caricature the wrath of God as though God was just, he flooded the world because he was just irritated, which is so interesting because I, I know that's, you're like, why is that interesting, Mike? It's interesting because that caricature is actually what pagan deities do look like from biblical times. The pagan lowercase g's, right, the, the gods that don't exist, the way they're caricatured, the way they are, dis I should say, accurately caricatured, they are described is, is capricious gods. Um, for instance, they will kill the world full of people because the people are noisy and the gods find it irritating. That's one of the pagan myths. They're going to kill you all because you're irritating. It's You're noisy. You're making noise. Shut up. You're all dead. Like that's that's the nature. But God instead, like when the world's flooded in Genesis, he says that it's because the wickedness of man, that his, his thoughts are only evil continually. He's saying that mankind grew to a place of just horrid, horrid wickedness. 
And when I hear um, uh, people describe this story who are non-Christians, they almost never acknowledge the actual biblical teaching on the topic. Yeah, God's wrath is not petty. Um, So again, Leon Morris in that same book, The Apostolic Preaching of the Cross, he says, To the men of the Old Testament, the wrath of God is both very real and very serious. God is not thought of as a capricious as capriciously angry like the deities of the heathen. But because he's a moral being, his anger is directed towards wrongdoing in any shape or form. Once roused, this anger is not easily assuaged and dire consequences may follow. But it is only fair to add that the Old Testament consistently regards God as a God of mercy. Though men sin and thus draw upon themselves the consequences of his wrath, yet God does not delight in the death of the sinners. He provides ways in which the consequences of sin may be averted. And we see him doing this consistently in the Old Testament and finally in Jesus Christ. Finally, we see it in Christ. How he averts wrath that we might be saved and forgiven because he's rightly mad, but he also loves us. He's rightly wrathful, but he cares for us and he wants to save us. And so when you you strip away wrath... Um, and you try to make a God uh, love, but with, with, with no element of wrath in any, anywhere in, in his behavior, um, then you distort the message of who God is. When you strip away love and you make God all wrath and, there, and God isn't love at the core of his being, God is love, then you have a, a false version of God. So we need both of these things intact in our understanding of who God is. But uh, we, we do feel t- discomfort because as I unpack these things and talk about them, you, you ask the question, does that mean God has wrath towards me? And so you might be tempted to, s- to separate God. Is he, he's either wrathful or he's loving and there's no mixture that, that can exist because of, you believe the caricature I introduced at the beginning of this teaching. And so you think, well, then does God love me or does, is he wrathful towards me? Which one is it? Because it's apparently only one option. Um, and and that, is, that is the problem. The Bible presents both as true. And I think that God's emotions towards us include both things, if if I could put it in a very uh, crude way, that I think his emotions towards us include both of those things, love and wrath, love and wrath, both of those things, because we are sinful, yet he cares deeply for us. Is this not possible in your own life, where you know people who you you could be angry with them, yet you desperately love them at the same time? Now, you might be tempted to sin in your anger, God won't have that issue, but you can understand that these things can be happening at the same time. It can happen at the same time. And so it doesn't mean you're without hope to recognize that God has wrath toward you. In fact, it's the beginning of hope. In 2 Peter 3.9, the Bible tells us God's posture towards those um, who he would have wrath toward. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. What is this slowness? You're like, what is this slowness that's being talked about in this passage it's talking about the idea that um, in the future god will judge the world but he keeps delaying that judgment and for and second peter 3 9 is giving us the reason like why won't if god's so wrathful why doesn't he just smite everyone right why is there this delay and the answer is because he wants everyone to be saved while yet there is that wrath the, the delay is there so that people might come to know god might come to christ and this is not a new thing in the new testament it's not like the old and new testament are in disagreement here rather as always as always they're in agreement in um in not not the book i just went to ezra in ezekiel chapter 33 verse 11 it says say to them as i live declares the lord i have no pleasure in the death of the wicked 
I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn back. Turn back, he says twice, from your evil ways. For why will you die, O house of Israel? God's heart towards them, wrath is on its way, and God's delaying it. And he's got the prophet out there saying, now turn back. I want you to live. I don't take pleasure in what's going to happen, but I have right and righteous wrath. And so this is the situation we find all of ourselves in. Again, in Ezekiel 18, verse 31, it says, Cast away from you all the transgressions that you have committed and make yourselves a new heart and a new spirit. Why will you die, O house of Israel? He doesn't see any any reasoning there. It's nonsense to reject God's gracious offer and persist in sin. There's, there's no point to it. For I have no pleasure in the death of anyone, declares the Lord God. So turn and live. Did you read that? So God is not malicious. God is not uh, capricious. God is not vindictive. God is not any of those other words. He has proper righteous wrath, and yet he wants us to know his grace and forgiveness. And this is, again, this is in the Old Testament. For those, many people have some assumptions about the Bible that... um, uh, they don't think that these things exist in the scriptures of the Old Testament. They think the two, the two halves of the scripture are, are fighting against one another when the, uh, nothing could be further from the truth. In Exodus 20 verse 5, it says, You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, Oh, by the way, let me preface this. Exodus 20 verse 5 gives us um, not about just God's wrath, but it talks about God's jealousy. And there's a similar thing between his wrath and jealousy. Um, he talks about how he's jealous. Uh, and, and you're like, what? Jealous? Jealousy is a bad thing. Well, on the human end, wrath usually ends up in sin, right? So we think of wrath as bad, but when we see God has perfect, just, and holy wrath that never expresses itself in sin, then we see, oh, that's the good thats good wrath, that's proper wrath. On the human end, jealousy often is stirred up and caused by selfish um, or ungodly motives and leads to sinful behaviors. But there is a proper kind of jealousy. Um, if, if I was walking down the street with my wife and she reached over and hugged and kissed some other guy, there would be a proper sense of jealousy that would be there, right? That would be appropriate. Now, on God's end, how much more allegiance does all the universe have to God? How much do we belong to him? How much does he, he, he have the right, the right to be recognized by all things? And to know that it just as I love my wife and we have a committed, committed relationship, to know that the people whom he loves and has purchased, they belong to him. So yeah, there's, there's that sense of jealousy that's proper um, and without sin. So he says, you shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord, your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. And people stop there. Oh, God's visiting the iniquity. He's, he's, he's allowing the, the punishments to continue. This, these are children. Uh, again, the word children in the scriptures in the Old Testament often means descendants, not babies. Okay, we often use it to refer to a certain age person. Here it's talking about generations. And there are those who hate him. So they're obviously not infants. There are people who are actively living against God and God's going to continue to persist in judging them because they're actively living against him. But look what he says in verse 6. It was just third and fourth generation of those who hate him, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. The parallel is, yes, I have judgment, but for those who love me, who follow me, I have even more mercy, even more kindness, even more love than you can imagine. You might think the wrath of God is intense, but the love of God is intenser. Um, I think that that would be a, a fair and perhaps slightly clumsy application of that verse. Um, 
the idea is that the wrath of God is meant to drive you to Jesus. And that's why God's warning them. Don't live that rebellious life. I have so much love for you. But indeed, still, the wrath of God is a reality. And we should be aware of it. Oh, I had, they didn't have the verses up on the screen that whole time. Well, I read them to you. But I was like showing you. It was, it was meant to be this interactive, whatever. My, my bad. Um, okay, let's talk for a minute before I go to your guys' questions. Let's talk for a minute about consequences of removing God's wrath. Because I think there's some, if, if, if we think, oh, I'm just going to say God has no wrath. Um, what are the consequences of this theology where I remove God's wrath? Uh, well, I'll, I'll say one of the consequences is I'm spitting in the face of the scriptures because I'm saying that God doesn't have wrath when the Old and New Testament both make it very clear that God not only has wrath, but that the wrath he has is righteous and good. I'm, I, I say this with strong words because I want us to hear how, how important it is. I'm spitting in the face of the scripture if I declare that God simply has no wrath because the Bible has declared that he does. Second consequence. It often results in me judging God. Um, I have, in fact, seen several people who get exercised into anger and wrath on their own at the idea that God would have wrath. And the irony is how, how, just as an observer, the irony is how righteous they feel about their self-righteous wrath against God. Well, the minute you acknowledge that your wrath is somehow appropriate, you must, therefore, realize that your case against God's wrath has just fallen apart. That if there's any human wrath that can be appropriate, then we must say that God's wrath is always, always right and appropriate. Third issue. My question to you, if you, if you struggle with God's wrath, if you, the idea of God's wrath is, is God not holy enough to have wrath? Is God not holy enough to have wrath? Or to put it another way, if I deny God wrath, am I not denying his holiness? Am I not, am I not saying I don't really trust him? I don't trust the goodness of his character, that his anger is pure, that his righteous judgment is righteous judgment. So I remove the holiness of God, perhaps, or at least it does some harm there. I can remove some essential elements of the meaning of the cross. Here's the fourth one. I can remove essential elements of the meaning of the cross because it becomes very confusing as to exactly how Jesus purchased me and saved me if I think that uh, God's judgment and, and his judgment and wrath are, you know, absolutely tightly connected together. And if I, if I remove the wrath, what do I make of judgment? What do I make of salvation? What do I make of the cross? It becomes watered down. It becomes thinned out. It becomes like a puzzle and you've, you've pulled out a bunch of the pieces and they're just missing. It also, um, what is this, number five? I think it potentially just diminishes God's love. I think it potentially diminishes God's love. If I say God has no wrath, um, then I am perhaps diminishing his love in a couple different ways. Uh, for one, he died for me and that incredible sacrifice and what he took upon himself, it's, it's how God demonstrates his love. His love is demonstrated in the cross. So when I strip that, the puzzle pieces out, I'm, I'm removing the weight of the glory and the love of God in the cross. But there's another side of this. Um, if, if I love someone, and evil is being done to them, I'm naturally angry. I'm naturally feeling that sense of wrath. And if I feel nothing, if I feel absolutely nothing, if someone was abusing a loved person, a loved one of mine, and they're just beating and hitting them and kicking them and calling them names and spitting on them, and I feel nothing, 
do I even love them? That's a, that's a good question, right? And when God sees us wounding and hurting each other or his own name, and he does love himself in a proper and right sense, and we're wounding and sinning against him and his own goodness, there should be a response to this. It seems to diminish God's love if we don't see it. Also, it can make light of sin. It can make light of sin. Uh, those who uh, think that wrath is like not a thing <laughs> or, or they or they only caricature it. So it's like this, you know, petty pettiness, this petty human thing, like an abusive, you know, step parent like that. That's the picture of God's wrath that they have. They often will make light of sin and end up embracing different kinds of wickedness because there isn't really no wrath for anything like that. So um, it just becomes a sort of self-serving don't do it because it's bad for you, but it doesn't come down to, but what does God think about it? Like, what is, what if I love God? I should care about what he cares about, not just doing whatever helps me. And so I, as a counselor, I know this, there's times where you're counseling people and you realize you're, you're not even, I've, I've fallen into this mistake and it's a mistake. It's a bad thing, but you're not even trying to get them to do what's right because it's right. Sometimes, and this is as a domestic violence counselor, I'm, I'm trying to get a guy to stop doing bad things because it's bad for him. When in reality, that's like the lowest rung on the ladder of why you should do right things is because it's going to hurt you personally. And so I want them to reach up and be like, how about because it hurts others? How about because it's a sin against God? How about because it's just wrong? You know, like how about because, you know, I love the Lord and I want to live for him and give him his due. Um, these are these are better reasons, um, but but when I when I make it all about just don't do bad things because they don't they're not good for you, I create narcissists, and um, that in itself is a problem. At least that's a potential problem. I'm not saying I don't want to caricature everybody else, but these are problems that may uh, may happen if you remove the idea of God's wrath. Others they want to depersonalize wrath. Here's another alternative. We'll go to your guys' questions in just a couple moments here. Um, they want to depersonalize God's wrath and say, well, God's wrathful. Yes, but he's only wrathful at sin. He's not wrathful at you. And I've heard this a lot and you probably have too. And you, and if you're like me, you, you thought there's something right about that and there's something wrong about that. And I'm not quite sure how to put my finger on it. But to say that God's not wrathful at sinners, but he's only wrathful at sin is to miss what the scripture actually is teaching us. See, because now we're again thinking God either loves me or he has wrath. Like it's one or the other. It can't be this more complicated than that. Um, And so then I I have to just somehow separate his wrath from me by saying he's just mad at sin, but he's never been mad at humans. And that is, um, I think that's a problem. (laughs) I think that's a problem. He's not just mad at what hurts you. I've, I've heard some say that God's wrathful, but he's just angry at what's hurting you. But you're not the center of creation. And you know this, right? Like, what if you're the one that's hurting you or you're the one that's hurting others? And, and, and we hear them do this, these preachers sometimes, where they'll say, um, God's going to get those people that are coming against you. He's going to take care of them. Don't worry about your enemies. God's going to get your enemies. And the funny thing is that you know some people in that room are thinking about other people in that room as their enemies. But the preacher's acting like everyone's always on God's side. And um, this is this is not a careful understanding of reality, I don't think. I don't want to depersonalize God's wrath. I, I, I want to recognize that it's personal, but so is mercy. Mercy is also personal. Mercy is incredibly personal. His love is incredibly personal. His desire for me is, is personal. I think w- there's a couple reasons why maybe we don't get it. We don't get this. We have a hard time with this. 
One is the caricature that I started the video with. It's not like God's either petty or he has no wrath. No, no, there is a holy wrath. There is a righteousness in God's anger. Um, although I don't want to caricature it as, as a human, pure human irk. You know, that's not the idea. No, no, God's high and holy and far above all that. Um, <clears throat> but there's, a, there's, a, there's something we can learn from it there. So that's one issue why we don't get it. Then another issue why we don't get it is we see ungodly wrath from humans and we associate the idea of God judging with that ungodly wrath that we experience from humans. And so we don't differentiate between uh, God's righteous, proper use of force, so to speak, or judgment versus that abusive or hurtful or mean person in our lives. And here we're doing a great disservice because we're sort of making God into that person's image, that, that messed up person that we remember growing up or something. And uh, don't do that to God. God is way greater. And then the last problem would be that we just think people deserve better. We, we think that God can't be wrathful because people are good and that's just messed up. And we're literally throwing God under the bus at the altar of man's holiness, which simply doesn't exist. Um, this is why Romans 5.8, it, it tells us, right, God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God's wrath is good. It flows from his goodness. It flows from his holiness. It's not the only thing that defines him, right? He, God is love. God is love, but he also has wrath. And it magnifies the goodness of God when you recognize that his wrath is wonderful. And I always think of Revelation 19, where it, uh, we, we this flash forward to the future, where God judges this, this uh, Babylon and the world system or whatever, however you interpret this passage. Um, but he's judging. And it's like wrath moment. And the saints who are there in glory... They look and they see the judgment on those who've rejected and those who've turned and they've had, they've had countless times to repent even in the book of Revelation. They could have repented over and over and over again. And you keep saying, but they wouldn't repent, but they wouldn't repent. So it's fully on them. And it says their smoke rises up. Her smoke rises up forever. That's what it says. And then the saints say, holy, holy, holy. Hallelujah. And they praise God for his wrath. This is because they, unlike maybe you or unlike perhaps me, they recognize not only the right of God to judge, but the goodness of his judgments and that his wrath itself is actually a good and proper thing. We have glimpses of this in stories we tell when a good man, you know, goes out and he finally becomes, you know, I'm going to get in there and I'm going to stop the evil and I'm going to take those guys down. And we're like, yes, go. Good job. Thank you. You know, but when we realize how much more it's true of God, um, I think it helps us uh, work through this, this um, challenging issue, especially in modern culture, on the wrath of God. Okay, that's what I had to share with you guys, and I hope it's fruitful. Don't forget the Bible Thinker app um, to check for it in your app stores, and I'll go to your guys' questions. As soon as I can find them. All right. Okay, we have tons of questions. So, um, <clears throat> from Flora. Um, I love your ministry. So excited about the app. Is it worldwide? Um, yeah, it should be worldwide. It should um, go everywhere, I think, as far as I know. I'm, I can't promise these things because this, this is not the technical know-how that I have. But I know it's already been tested in, in more than one country outside the U.S. And so <coughs> so it should be, should be good to go, I believe. Um, can I explain the vision in Ezekiel 1? It's, uh, I get it's heaven, but the creatures and everything confuse me. Boy, that would have to be a whole video in and of itself um, because there's tons and tons of details there. 
yeah. So one thing I'll recommend, though, since I can't get into it in just the Q&A, is when you guys have challenging passages, try to look for multiple different teachers who've handled those passages. And there's so much content free online. Now, you have to be careful. You, you have to be willing to filter what you read because you're going to find stuff that's weird because it's all mixed in there, you know. But it's good to get multiple teachers' perspectives on a passage and help you think it through. But make sure that you're not relying on that teacher to just tell you what it means. But you're always letting the passage have authority over the teacher and they're just commenting on it, including myself. I'm just giving you commentary here to think about. Um, all right, next question. Oops. There it is. <clears throat> Um, from Darth Vega, does God hate the sinner? And it's Psalm 11, verse 5. Let's look at the psalm first. The Lord tests the righteous, but his soul hates the wicked and the one who loves violence. So um, uh, sometimes in scripture, the term hate is used in a, in a, in, in a way that means selection. Uh, like I believe this is this is implied in Romans 9 Jacob I loved Esau I hated I think it's referring to I picked one I didn't pick the other and so I think here he tests the righteous but his soul hates the wicked and the one who loves violence and, if, and don't get me wrong I'm not saying that God I'm not saying God here doesn't hate the wicked in any sense I'm saying though that there is an element I think of selection that might be in this case I'd want to like look up some resources and stuff and I haven't done it on this exact verse um, but I'll say this um, the one, the one who loves violence and is wicked, is me, and you, and so while we see the psalm get, making it very clear that God is is going to be rejecting the wicked, we also see that God also loves them, and so here's where I my honest pos position is that God loves and in some sense hates the same people at the same time. Right, and he's willing to see them changed and transformed, and he's willing to take them from the from the inside out, make them into new people in Christ. They literally become new people in Christ, and so that all offense is going to be gone and then transformed. Uh, you know, our corrupt nature is gone in all eternity, and so all the things about me that God would disapprove of, covered by the blood of Jesus, and finally even removed from my character upon uh, my uh, my glorification in the future. So I'd say, I mean, Psalm eleven five. it's like, yeah, you persist in that wickedness. You stay in the place of God's rejection. You turn to him and he receives you. So yeah, that's a good illustration of God's wrath, proper wrath. Um, Chris Smith, what has the reply been to JWs when you show them Hebrews 1, 8? Um, I noticed that this verse is the same in the New World Translation. Um let me think about this. I think what you're asking me is what do the Jehovah's Witnesses say about Hebrews 1.8? <clears throat> um, it's been a little while since I looked into this. It was fresh on my mind a couple months ago and I'm going, man, I don't remember off the top of my head what the Jehovah's Witness response is to Hebrews 1.8. Uh, Hebrews 1.8 is clearly about Jesus. Of the Son, he says... Um, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. Actually, I think the the New World Translation says, God is your throne. I think it says, God is your throne, um, which has problems. First off, just when you hear it in English, you go, that sounds like it doesn't make sense. Like, how is, how, so I'm, I'm enthroned on God. Is that what he's saying about Jesus? Jesus is, is sitting on God as a throne. Is he higher than God now? 
Um, what does this mean? Um, so I think that they take it and they change the meaning or they, it's, a, it's not that it's not a possible interpretation, it's that it's probably not a very good one. <laughs> and so I think that's how they handle it. Um, yeah. Let's look at uh, Anna Boshier's question. Why are true believers held to account, for example, if they're a pastor shepherding God's flock and leads some astray, when if he's truly saved, wouldn't he be forgiven all of the wrong he did? Um, how is that? I'm going to read the whole question. It's kind of long and I'll try to summarize. Um, how is that a non-believing, how is it that a non-believing husband or wife is sanctified by the believing husband or wife? I'm sure it doesn't give them salvation. So it is purely, okay, I'm going to pause on that one because I, I went through that just recently. When, when did I do that? Was that last week? Yeah, that was just last Tuesday. I did um, a video and I went through that exact passage. So I, I encourage you, go watch that video. We walked through it carefully. I worked through it exactly. It's my video on um, responding to Calvinist arguments on limited atonement. Yeah, it's in that video of all things. But we're in that, we do that verse specifically. But the first question, um, well, why are they held to account a pastor? If a pastor is shepherding God's flock and he leads them astray, why is, why is he held to like some higher standard? And I think the answer here is in James. And I'm not talking about my standards. I'm talking about God's standards here, though it may apply to both. It says, uh, not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. And then it, gets, it goes into the dangers of, 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 the, of the tongue. I'm talking, right, a lot. And a lot of people are listening to me right now. And if I say things that lead them astray, I'm not only hurting myself, I'm hurting them too and whoever they influence. My influence is, is, is big. And so my accountability for that influence is big. And so I have to be very sober about the idea of being a teacher for others. So I think, Anna, that, that would be my, uh, my answer is, yes, higher level of accountability. Now, what does it mean judged more strict with, with more strictness? Um, that's probably a whole other study right there. There's, there's a few possibilities. Um, Kelly says, if we, believers in Jesus, are not appointed to wrath, would we be here for the tribulation? That is one argument for pre-trib rapture is that we're not here for the, the wrath part. And so we're out. Um, another would be, um, well, the, the, the real wrath part is halfway through. And so they'd say mid-trib could fit that as well. And um, I, I'm interested in those arguments. Um, and, I'm, and I'm traditionally a pre-trib you know, position. That's, that's what I was raised with. And so I hold that. But I also recognize that I feel like people never make bigger mistakes in their ministries than when they start trying to predict the meaning of prophecy that is perhaps yet unfulfilled. And so um, I want to just have a dose of humility in my own ministry in this regard. And perhaps in the future, if I study it better and more, I'll, I'll come down with stronger opinions on some of these things. Um, so I'll just acknowledge Kelly. What you share there is is one of the reasons in First Thessalonians why they say, hey, we think we're not here for the tribulation because we are not appointed to wrath. There are responses to that and all that, but I won't get into it today. Tara Balvin says, there are some teachers I'm hearing say that Jesus lived his life on earth and performed miracles as a human in right relationship with God, not as God. How would you help someone see the error in this? Oh, that's a tough one, Tara. I've been thinking about this because I hear the same thing. Um, Jesus did miracles not as God, but as a human in right relationship with God. I don't think that that's the whole story. I think that that's just inaccurate. Um, he definitely did it as a human, but I don't think he ever did anything not as God. I mean, at no point did Jesus stop being God. 
And if he's still God, then how is he not doing it as God? It doesn't make sense. I think that this the slogan is used to try to um, bring people into a, what I consider not accurate understanding of what they should expect when it comes to miracles and healings and signs and wonders in their own lives. Because they're going to say, look, if Jesus could do it, you could do it. End of story. That's all the theology you need about it. And then, yeah, that I have a problem with. I will do more content on that. But I have a little bit on that in my Bill Johnson video that I think a lot of you have seen. Uh, where I do get into some of that. About how we're not here just trying to say, let's copy everything Jesus did. Um, um, I don't want to be like Jesus. But I don't want to copy everything Jesus did. There's a difference. <clears throat> Um, so, uh, Nikki Boyvid says, Hey, Pastor Mike, your videos are awesome. Thank you very much. Uh, can you help me work through Acts 13, 48? What's your understanding of appointed to eternal life? All right, here we go. Acts chapter 13, 48. Here's my opinion. Okay. My opinion. And of course the Q and a are, are always my off the top of my head answers. They're not my sit down and think about it and spend two hours prepping one answer that this is just my off the top of the head answer, but here it goes. They're preaching the gospel in Acts 13 and they say, and when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed really interesting passage because, um, often Calvinists will say, look, this is clearly evidence that the, the ones who believe were first appointed unto eternal life. Um, and I would say I agree with them in this, in that regard. Now I don't go where they go with it, but I agree here that this is talking about individuals who were appointed to eternal life. Uh, some might try to re rework the passage. So it says as many as believed had been appointed to it or something like that. But I think that what we're saying is that God knew from the beginning of, of time, from the beginning of the moment of creation, exactly which individuals were going to be saved. He chose to create, and this, this is, um, uh, this might be TMI, might be too much information. He chose to create the world exactly as he did, that would be populated with exactly the people that he had selected to be part of this creation. He knew which of them would be saved. And so I can say that election, in my view, election is true on an individual and corporate level. I think both of those are true. Maybe I'm wrong. That's my view of election. I do not, however, think that this pushes Calvinism on us. And I, I think it's because of the fact that um, God can elect, but he can also um, give us free will. And I don't see any conflict between the two. I don't see any at all. I never have. I've tried to listen for it and I just don't see the conflict there. So I think God in his sovereignty, he's chosen, but he's also given us free will. And you could throw your hands up and say, I don't know how it works out, but clearly the Bible says we have free will. And clearly the Bible says that we are yet chosen. And I'll just believe both of those things. And you're on safe ground because you're just believing what scripture says. One way of working this out, though, is um, uh, something that's called uh, middle knowledge. And this is where it gets really complicated really fast. And the idea is God knows all the what ifs of the universe. He knows if he had created you a year ago versus today, if, if he um, put someone else in that spot instead of you, or if this tree grew over here, how that would have changed Winston Churchill's day when he was making some big decision during the war or something like that. Like God knows all those what ifs. And because he's sovereign over all things, when he decides to create the world just as he did, even though, even though he allows man free will, because he knew what they would choose, he can also be said to have chosen those people. Um, that might, I hope I've 
giving you a quick summary of that view. I hope I did it, did it justice. I think that makes a lot of sense, though. Um, so I think that is consistent with the idea that God has elected, but we also have a free will choice. Um, yeah. So I affirm Acts 13.48 and, and a, a very similar to a Calvinist interpretation of it, but but not Calvinist, though, because the verse by itself doesn't teach Calvinism. It just says that they were appointed. Um, there you go. That's my thoughts. Uh, I have a question from Nile Lady in Red. Uh, can a vegan argue for animal rights from a biblical perspective, not to say that humans and animals are equal, but that it's wrong to abuse or torture animals for fun or just because? Okay, well, I, I, let's separate veganism from this question for a minute. Um, animal rights. Can you argue from the Bible for some kind of animal rights? Yes. Um, but is is that veganism? Well, no. I mean, saying that we shouldn't torture animals for fun or just because you want to kill an animal, that's not at all related to veganism, I don't think. My understanding of veganism is it's, 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 it's much, much more than that. Um, so, yeah, there's when, you know, I, Proverbs says that the righteous man is kind even to his animals. So that the way I treat animals reveals something about my own nature. And this is true even, they said, of like serial killers, where they are found to have tortured animals at younger ages. Because the way I treat other living things is the way I am. That's me doing it. So I'm manifesting wickedness. I might be doing it to a lesser being, an animal instead of a person, but I'm still being wicked and evil. Um, but yeah, yeah, I think that there's um, uh, there's probably other scriptures that would bear that would definitely bear have bearing on that stuff. Uh, in Genesis, when God gives Adam and Eve dominion, He doesn't tell them go destroy it. <laughs> the idea is that there's a stewardship taking place there, and if you gave your your um, your child a pet and your your child just started doing some horrible thing to it torture to it you would you would obviously think the kid was not a good steward <laughs> that's what i'm saying so i think that that seems obvious and there seems to be some biblical support for it i'm sure there's more if i spent some more time perhaps on it um first last says if a pastor will not meet with you to reconcile after a theological disagreement how would you proceed um that's a t- that's a tough one and it's a bummer um I would, uh, I would proceed by um, following what Romans says, in as much as it depends on you, live peaceably with all people, as much as it depends on you. And so I would continue to try to be gracious and kind to them in a genuine way, because sometimes when people have disagreements, the next time they see them, the fake smile and the fake face comes out. None of that, right? None of that stuff, but just genuine kindness, genuine if they want distance, you can give them some distance, but give it to them with like a kind of gentleness and compassion that you have for them. And so you're not trying to force this restoration to happen, but you're showing them that the olive branch is out and that in as much as it's possible, you're living at peace with them. If they won't meet with you to have a reconciliation, you can show them love in your behavior, even if it's at a distance for a time. That would be my counsel, my advice. Um, it's not fun stuff, but it will grow your character in Christ as you do it. Susan Morales says, is God angry with uh, prosperity gospel preachers? Um, yes. Ed Jacobson says, Mike, Ed here. <laughs> what is, I'm just saying, like, when you, when you mess with the gospel, that's a pretty big deal. Um, I'd, imagine, I'd imagine so. But I don't want to self-righteously think that that, uh, that, that hasn't, uh, that I am not also subject to sin and issues and my own problems. And I do think that there's a difference, and I should have mentioned this in the bigger, the front of the video. There's a difference between those who are in Christ and those who are not in Christ. 
when I am in Christ, positionally in Christ, read Ephesians 1 through 3, right? When I'm in Christ, that anger, wrath, the, the thing is I'm not a child of wrath anymore. I am now in Christ. And so my relationship with God has been restored. And there isn't this like breaking of the relationship every time I fail, or every time I mess up, because there is a positional in Christ thing happening right here. God's love and provision and protection and his, um, his propitiation. That's the fancy word in the Bible for how God deals with his wrath. That propitiation has happened in Jesus and you're in Jesus. So all the wrath is dealt with. We're not appointed to wrath, right? That, that wrath is dealt with, so to speak. You're outside of Christ. You're storing up. You're just storing up wrath. Scripture says they're just you're storing it up for the day of judgment. But you come into Christ. It's it's all whoosh, flushed away, so to speak. As far as the east is from the west, so far He's removed our sins from us. Um, all right. Ed Jacobson says, "Question, Mike. Ed here. Um, what is your take on the severity of holding to the oneness doctrine? My family has started to adopt it, and I could use some counsel. Thanks for your great ministry, man." Um, I, Ed, part of me wants to say, like the black and white thinker that I try to be, I want to say oneness compromises the very nature of God. That's the idea that, that, um, right, we don't have Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It's, anyway, I don't want to get way into the details of it, but, um, but I want to talk about my, uh, my reaction to it. So part of me want to say that, that that compromises the very nature of God, and I wouldn't let that person um, teach at my church. I wouldn't let them spread their stuff. On the other side, I recognize that some people are confused. Some people are promoting things while they're, they're, there's, it's sin just driven them to this place. Others have been lied to, and then they're repeating those things, and maybe God's going to work them out of it. And so just realizing how complicated life is, I don't always know the, there, there's a one easy answer for this question. So I just would say from my perspective, just as a guy, like not like I have authority on any of these things, but I'd, I would suggest pray for wisdom, seek wisdom, um, and, and, and may God, may God direct you and let you know how to handle this. I do think that I'm inclined to think it's fairly severe, but I'm also aware that I want to have a certain amount of humility about my own, um, when I when I draw lines between me and other people, I, I just want to be careful about it. Um, Adora Bengals says, um, I understand the Bible tells us that the death penalty is not enforced by Christians today for us, let's say homosexuality. Can you help me understand this for why does the penalty for sin change? Um, it hasn't changed exactly. Um, so I, I do I do talk about this in a video I did on Stephen Anderson. So if you search my name and the name Stephen Anderson, I actually go into much more detail, like a lot more detail on this exact topic. And I go through the Old Testament law and all that kind of thing. So I encourage you to please look at that video. It's more than a two-minute explanation. But but the two-minute explanation is that, um, <clears throat> is that uh, the law reveals the death penalty for lots of sins. Now, I'm not talking about the death penalty in principle. Is it okay to use the death penalty ever? That's a separate issue. Um, But the law of the Old Testament reveals the death penalty for lots of different sins, many of which you have committed and I have committed. And we would be under that same death penalty. And in Christ, we're released from the curse of the law. So now, released from the curse of the law, we're not to go out and try to put that curse of the law on everybody else. That is a confused theology. There's the short answer the short answer is that God was God giving a progressive revelation leading to Christ and it culminates in Jesus and Jesus changes everything. 
there's a short answer. For a more detailed answer, check out that video, please. Or my two-part series on um, how to understand the Old Testament law. Um, I think that that may really help. Um, okay, I'm just going to take, uh, let's see, I guess maybe one more question. Um, um, some of these, I'm, I'm just looking for one, one last one. Um, how about from Judah Matthews? It says, Mike, what do you say to the claim that eternal condemnation constitutes God's love having a built-in time limit? that upon death, God's love turns into everlasting hatred for the damned. I don't, I don't think I know how to answer that question, Judah. It's interesting that you're, you're thinking about these things and working them through, and that's good. I just honestly don't know how to answer that question. Um, so for the final question of our, of our day, I think I'll say I don't know. Um, is there some sense in which God still loves the same people that he loved them when they were alive and they were rejecting him? Does he still have some compassion and love for them? It seems like I'm just working through it now with you. It seems like um, in the Old Testament, even when he's judging, he's grieved about it. He's like, why? Why would you do this? Why, why turn from your way? It doesn't seem like he stops having a sense of compassion for them. But, but that doesn't mean that judgment won't come. Um, just as I might care about somebody, but, I, but as a boss, I might still fire them. Does that mean I don't care about them anymore? I, I'm not sure that I would say that. So I, I'm going to lean towards, I lean towards no, just because of the things I share with you there. Um, but, but I'm not sure how to answer that question. So I hope this has been a blessing to you guys. Um, I'm really enjoying uh, doing the Mark series right now. I hope you have a chance to check it out. Um, going to continue with it. In two weeks, I will not be having a live stream because me and my wife celebrated our 10-year anniversary and we've been, we had to delay it, but we're going to be uh, going on a cruise for a few days, something we've been like waiting to do for years. It's always been on our list and so we're going on a little cruise for a few days and um, uh, really looking forward to the relaxation of that. Um, so that's two weeks from today, no live stream. I do plan on doing it next week and it may just be Q and a because I have a lot of prep and stuff I've got coming for other things that you'll know about soon enough. So Lord bless you guys. And don't forget to check out the, uh, Bible thinker.